Good morning. Good morning. Here we go. Hey, if you have a Bible, you can open it or get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, while you're turning there, I want to cover just a few uh, housekeeping items here uh, just for our church. Uh, we have quite a bit to be grateful for as a church family. Uh, quite a few things. Uh, we, we saw your faithfulness um, throughout uh, the difficulty of the last two years. Uh, God just blessing that. And so as we're coming out of that difficult season, we're seeing the church grow. We're meeting lots and lots of new families. And I say all that for a couple of reasons. One, um, we feel it. And so like when you come in, you're like, hey, do they, do they know the room's filling up? Like, what are they doing? I want to like just reassure you that our elders uh, are meeting, and we're praying and planning and thinking about what is next. And so my request from, for you is, would you begin to pray for the elders at our church as they begin to pray and think and plan about, hey, what's next uh, for New Hope as we're here in this community as a church family? We've seen God's faithfulness all over uh, the ministry here at New Hope, and we're just grateful for it. Um, uh, four and a half years ago, if you're new to our church, we had an initiative that um, allowed us to renovate uh, the facility and add on to it a little bit. If you're newer to the church, you, you may not know that, but that, that's what took place here at New Hope. That initiative four and a half years ago was $4.3 million, um, quite, a, quite a big thing for a church our size. And four and a half years later, uh, we are on track by January to be debt-free. And so, uh, yeah, that's pretty incredible. Uh, the Lord has blessed that. And, and so now we're thinking, okay, like what, where are we headed? Like we're, we're able to start thinking that direction and wanted to reassure you that we were doing that. And so my goal in, in telling you that is this. Um, we as a church family, we want to be transparent, tell you where we're at. Secondly, um, it's easy um, to begin thinking about all that's been good and what is to come next and forget to pause and simply thank God for all that he's done. And so this morning, I want to start out just doing that just thanking God for how great he's been to our church family. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much just for how good you are. I thank you, as we've prayed numerous times this morning already, uh, for your sovereignty. You know uh, so much more than we do, and you are so much wiser than we are. And so our plans and our thoughts, if they're not connected to you, they are done in vain. And so my prayer is that as a church family, as we begin to seek where you're leading us, that it would be all about you, that it would be all about Jesus, and that we would lean heavily into your word and into prayer and into fellowship with one another as we seek where you're leading us next. But God, right now, we just want to pause and say thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for the lives that have been changed here. Uh, Father, thank you for the friendships that have been formed. We just thank you for all that you're doing. And we give our thanks for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, a man named Steve Callahan, uh, after a really bad boating accident, was lost at sea. Here's a picture of Steve in the raft, this little raft that he was lost at sea in. Here's what's interesting about this, this particular story. He was lost at sea for 76 days. Like, just put yourself there for a second. 76 days, two and a half months, he is lost at sea living in this little raft somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. Well, he began to starve to death, right? He began, his, he did disoriented, dazed. He was all over the place. And yet in the midst of all of that, you're, you know, you're emaciated, you're, you're, you're dying. And in the midst of the difficulty of being lost at sea two and a half months, he had the thought to take three pencils and weave them together, latch them together to form a, a sextant, 
which is a nautical tool that allows you to figure out where you're at to collect your bearings by measuring the distance between the sun and the horizon. So it was, it was his ability, his understanding of these two fixed realities in the universe that allowed him to get his bearings straight. And because of that, he was able to figure out what latitudinal line he was on in the Atlantic Ocean. Because of his understanding of these two fixed realities, he was able to paddle himself into the current and, and the current pushed him, the right current, that pushed him right into the Caribbean islands for a nice vacation. It's beautiful there. And where he wrote a best-selling book. And uh, he's doing really good now, right? He's doing just fine now. But I find that so fascinating. It was his understanding of these two fixed realities in the universe that gave him the ability to figure out where he was and where he was headed. Last week, David started us out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 by giving us these two fixed realities for Christians. In 1 Corinthians uh, 15, the two fixed realities that he gives us are the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And these two fixed realities, if we are uh, experiencing difficulty in life, like many of us have, if we are going through a, a tough time emotionally, physically, we're getting that phone call, and you know the phone call, the one that as soon as you hang up, your whole world starts spinning. You're watching the people that you love, their bodies fading on them. You open that bank account, and uh-oh, Whatever it is that you're going through, Paul's trying to teach the church in Corinth, there's these two fixed realities. And based on the depth of your understanding of these two fixed realities, it allows you to get your bearings straight and understand how best to live in the world today because you understand what's coming in the world to come. This is what Paul's trying to get across to the church at Corinth. But here's the thing, it's not easy, is it? Like, I, I can know that these two fixed realities impact my life. As a, as a follower of Jesus, I can know with certainty that the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus died for my sins. I deserved to die because I'm a sinner. And the penalty for that sin is death, meaning God has to kill me in order to be a just and loving God because he cannot tolerate sin, the sin that's in my life. So death is headed my direction. But Jesus steps in the way and absorbs the blow that was intended for me, and he dies on my behalf. But not only that, he then resurrects from the dead, defeating death and stripping it of any power it has in my life. I can know that. But then there's Tuesday, or there's Wednesday, and the waters that I find myself adrift in begin to get rough, and it begins to get harder and harder to fix my eyes on those two fixed realities, and I begin to lose hope. You remember the story when Jesus raised a little girl in Mark chapter 5? This little girl's dad's name was Jairus. He was a man with a lot of influence. And his little girl was sick to the point where there was nothing they could do to help her. And so Jairus takes off and he heads to go find Jesus. He wants to find him. And he goes on this long journey and he finds himself in the presence of Jesus and he pleads with Jesus there in Mark chapter 5. My daughter is sick, and she's dying, and you're the only person that can help her, and I know that you can heal her. Would you just come to my house, please? I know it's a long journey. I know this is an inconvenience. I know that this isn't what everyone thinks that you should be doing, but I have no other hope. You're my only hope. Well, of course, Jesus is like, yes, absolutely. And so they begin their journey to get to Jairus' house to heal Jairus' daughter, but along the way, there's some different distractions, things that hold them up. And ultimately, a group of people from Jairus' house show up. And in Mark chapter 5, verse 35, it says these words that will appear up here for you. It says that while Jesus was speaking to a group of people that had got his attention, some people came from the house of Jairus. And when they came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader 
says to him, your daughter is dead. Your daughter's dead. It's over, man. But then these words really get me. Why bother the teacher anymore? Why bother? That's a tough one. You ask anybody in the medical profession and they'll tell you that the definition of death is when the cessation of brain activity, meaning there's no going back. Hope is gone when the brain ceases to function. So now these leaders come to Jairus and they say, all hope is gone. Your daughter's gone. She's dead. There's There's no hope. But then they, 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 they latch on that phrase that I don't know about you, but I've, I've felt the weight of that last question that they asked them. I've felt that in my life during dark and difficult seasons, during even on reflecting on difficult seasons, or you, you have those moments where the weight of your life kind of hits you and you're looking at the future and you're just wondering, what is the point? And so you begin to ask yourself, like, why bother? Why bother? What's the point? You say, why bother the teacher? Like, why bother him? Why pray? Why live out missionally? Why move your family to the other side of the world? Why go to your neighbor's house to share Jesus with him? Why bother? What's the point of it all? Well, the story of Mark 5 is not over yet. The best part of the story comes next. And Jesus goes on to the house of Jairus anyway, despite the pessimistic, the glass is half empty view of his friends. And he shows up at Jairus's house and he raises the little girl from the dead. Says, oh, she's just sleeping. She's, it's time for her to wake up. And he raises her from the dead. And an eruption takes place in the house. It's fascinating when you read it. Everybody starts praising Jesus. Like, are you kidding me? She was dead and now she's alive. And I want you to picture, because you can read a story like that and like, oh yeah, I've watched a hundred movies. And we're desensitized to the magnitude of the event that took place in Mark 5. We are, as a culture. We can read something like that and we're like, yeah, okay. But think about being in that moment. Think about being Jairus. Your daughter's dead. Why bother him? Yeah, you're right. Why bother him? Well, no, this is why you bother him. Because look who's in the house and look what he said and look what happened. The little girl is raised from the dead. He got his little girl back in that moment. And everybody around him is like, no, she was like dead, dead. And how is she possibly alive now? Who is this? And all of the attention flows to Jesus. But then you look at Jesus in Mark 5, and he's not focused on the same thing that all the people are focused on. No, Jesus' attention's on the little girl. Everyone else is focused on him, and yet in the midst of all of that, he's focused on her. And, and it's fa- my favorite part of the story is he looks at the, the parents of the little girl, and he says to them, she's hungry. Go get her some food. I'm like, what? Like in the middle of all of it, she's hungry. It's fascinating to me that this girl's grumbling stomach mattered as much to Jesus as her beating heart. That's fascinating. That tells me something about Jesus. That tells me that he is absolutely fascinated with the life that we live here as much as he is with the one he's preparing for us there. That he is intricately interested in the details of our life, so much so that he knew she was hungry. I mean, he just brought her back from the dead. She can wait for lunch, but not with Jesus. No, she's hungry. Go get her some food because her stomach matters as much as her beating heart. This is what Paul's trying to get across in 1 Corinthians 15 to the church at Corinth. He's trying to explain to them, like, yes, your future matters in Christ, but so does your present. And vice versa, he'll try to get across to them in this chapter your, the saving of your souls is significant, but so is the place I'm going to prepare for you. 
And you've got to keep your eyes fixed on those two realities. One, he died for your sins and you're forgiven for eternity, but he resurrected from the dead and you're going to resurrect as well. And he begins to teach them this truth. I had a family member who, uh, a loving family member, and their struggle with Christianity was this line that they would always give to me early on when I first became a Christian. They would say to me, the problem with you Christians, which is always a good lead-in, right, is that you're just concerned with your afterlife insurance policy. I'm like, have you read Mark 5? <laughs> like, no, no, no. Like, yes and no. Like, yes, absolutely. Jesus himself said, I go to prepare a place for you, and it's going to be incredible, and you should be consumed with how awesome that will be. But he cares about the here and now just as much. And he cares about the details of your everyday life as much as he cares about preparing the details for your tomorrow life when you're with him forever. And this is what he's trying to get across to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to pick up down in verse 35. They begin to ask these questions. Verse 35 says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? How are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come in? Like what kind of body is going to, to be their body? So they're wondering like, hey, when we're raised from the dead, so like when we die, we go into the ground and when we're buried, like, and then all of a sudden at this resurrection, Jesus is going to resurrect us again. Like what's the body part going to be like? And you think, hey, that's an innocent enough question. Like what happens to me actually when I die? Like you know, the Bible tells us, and so this is a kind of a side note, because that's not really what the, the, the Corinthians are asking, but I, I know that that would be a question that would come into your mind. The body says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if we die and we are Christians, we will immediately be in the presence of the Lord, but we won't have our final new heavens and new earth body yet. And those of us that are alive when the, when, when the Lord returns, if we don't die, we don't have our final body yet either. When Jesus returns, the text will tell us in the twinkling of an eye, instantaneously, we will, those in Christ will be resurrected and given brand new bodies. More on that in just a moment. But what they're asking, the struggle that these are having, is they had given into this teaching that divorced the spirit from the body, the soul from the body. And so what they're saying is, I'm a Christian. My soul is saved. My body doesn't matter. Which gives you some context for 1 Corinthians. They've been giving themselves into so many different things. Because they didn't think that their body in the, in the world today really mattered. Because I'm not going to have that body anyway. And what Paul's saying is, no, 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 that's not the case. Your view of death in this moment is robbing you of all the joy that God has for you in this life. Right? We've said this before just to be comical. So many Christians were so doom and gloom. Like, we're like, we like to be sad. Like, our faces would be good book covers for the book of Lamentations. Right? Like, like that's how we are like all the time. And what he's telling the church of Corinth is if you view death as this thing where your body in this life doesn't matter, it's stripping all the joy from what you, you could enjoy in life. Think of it this way. Suppose somebody, and this is a little bit gruesome, so bear with me. It's not too gruesome, but we'll see. Uh, suppose somebody breaks into your house and they tie you up and two things. One, they tell you with no uncertainty that they're going to kill you. And then, for the sake of the story, you know with no uncertainty there's no escape. So there is only one conclusion. You are going to die. And they tie you up, and they tell you, I'm going to kill you. But then they say, hey, I'm not heartless. So what are some things in life that you enjoyed? Like, what did you like to do with your time? And so you answer them, well, I liked to play video games, or I liked this movie that I love to watch, or I like to play chess, Okay. They say, okay, well, before I kill you, I want you to enjoy yourself, so why don't we play chess or play that video game a little bit, and then won't that make your final moments a little more enjoyable? Well, you know the answer. Like, absolutely not. 
Like, no, like the, the impending death that you're going to experience would strip you of all the joy you could possibly have in something that normally did give you joy. But your view of death in that moment would strip every sense of joy that you would get out of that simple activity. This is what Paul's saying to the church in Corinth. Your view of death is kind of twisted to the point where you're not going to get any joy out of life because you viewed it as this end of the road type of thing. And it's so much more than that for those who are in Christ. And so he begins to kind of explain this. When you get your eyes fixed on this reality, here's what it really means for the Christian when they die. Verse 36. How foolish, how foolish of you. You're a Christian. You know the two fixed realities. The waters around you have got tough, and you've got your eyes off of those two truths that would be guiding your view of death, but instead you've given into a twisted view of death. That's foolish. What you sow does not come to life until it, unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body, and he has determined that he has determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. And, the star, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is now sown is perishable, but it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So here, Paul focuses in on what our bodies are going to be like at the return of Jesus. And he uses this analogy of a seed. So if I had a, some seeds up here, you wouldn't know what they were for. If I just had the seeds, I could have seeds in my hand, and they look pretty dead. Like they're kind of useless until you what? Until you plant them, right? This is the perfect community to talk about this, right? Where I grew up, it didn't work. Seeds, what? All right. So you take seeds and you put them into the soil, okay? And they're dead. And then God in his sovereignty provides what is needed for that seed to come to life. And when it comes to life, what went into the ground and what comes out of the ground are two completely different things. And you see this all over the place. If I took a carrot seed and I planted it in the ground, what comes out of the ground looks nothing like what the seed looked like. You put a pumpkin seed in the ground, pumpkins come out, it looks nothing like it. It's totally different. And what comes out of the ground is far better than what went into the ground. It's far better. It, it, it produces more. It's stronger. It's bigger. It's a better version of what went into the ground because life has come out of it. And the Apostle Paul says, this is what happens when a Christian dies. Their body goes down into the ground. And when Jesus returns, they're going to be raised to a new body. They're going to be given a new body. And that body is going to be far different than the body that went into the ground. Meaning the body that we have in our life today, the one that we experience in our everyday life, is far different from the one that we will have in heaven. Both of them are physical. Both, we're going to have physical bodies at the return of the Lord. We know that because the rest of the Bible will teach us that when the new heavens and the new earth come, God is going to recreate all of creation and the physical creation is going to come. So we'll get these new bodies. But he says, now in this life, it's different and it's going to look different than the one in the life to come. I like the way Eugene Peterson translates this particular part of our passage in the, in the message translation. Here's what he writes. Some skeptic is sure to ask, show me the, how the resurrection works. Give me a diagram. Draw me a picture. What does the resurrection body look like? If you look at this question closely, you realize how absurd it is. 
There are no diagrams for this kind of thing. But we do have a parallel experience in gardening. You plant a dead seed, soon there's a flourishing plant. There's no visual likeness between the seed and the plant. You could never guess what a tomato would look like from a tomato seed. What we plant in the soil and what grows out of it don't look anything alike. The dead body that we bury in the ground and the resurrection body that comes from it will be dramatically different. And Paul's trying to get this across to them. And he communicates a really interesting truth when we move down in our passage a little bit about the significance of both the body we have on earth and the body we will have at the return of Jesus. And he says this, if you jump down to verse 50, he says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. And David defined that last week. That's death. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. And they flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed forever. For the, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of death is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's telling us, the body that goes into the ground is perishable. It's subject to all kinds of pains and aches and difficulty. And when Jesus returns, if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, when Jesus returns, the body you're going to get in the new heavens and the new earth is imperishable. It cannot hurt. It does not ache. It does not age. And you've experienced this. I've had phone calls this week that have been difficult because people's bodies are beginning to fail them. Paul contrasts this. Even the fittest, most active people Right, one, deemed one of the, the most athletic and healthiest people on the face of the planet, Bruce Lee, the martial artist, at the peak of his physical health, died completely and totally unexpectedly. You've experienced this. Even the fittest of bodies, like you get a bodybuilder and let a cat walk in the room, and then he's reduced to a sniffling ball of allergies, right? Like, look, our bodies are subject to corruption because of sin. And the corruption that can take place in our bodies influences our bodies in such a way that we are aging and our bodies begin to fail us. We experience certain pains that we didn't experience before. I watched a documentary this past week on the life of Kobe Bryant. And, uh, you know, one of the greatest basketball players ever. And in this documentary, he's talking about the last year of his career. And he said, the hardest part of that part of my career was waking up and going to a game and realizing as I would run down the court, I used to do this so effortlessly, and now as I go to run down the court, I have to think, does my knee hurt? Is my shoulder hurting? Can I do this? And he said that's when he knew his playing career was coming to an end, when his body wasn't keeping up with what his mind wanted him to do. And we've experienced that. I took my daughter on this trip uh, this year, and uh, we, we, like, I, I like to take them each on a trip when they turn 10, one-on-one, uh, -on -one, and hers was canceled because of COVID, so it was kind of a big bummer. So she had to wait till she was 11. So we go on this trip, and we go out west, and we're going to visit some friends and hike and do some different things. And uh, my daughter's favorite vehicle is outside of our budget, and it's a Jeep, but like a nice Jeep Wrangler. Like, and so I, but it's not outside of our budget to rent them. And so, <laughs> so we went on this trip, and we got there. I surprised her, and I rented a Jeep. It looked kind of like this one, right? And so we got this Jeep. Yeah, I like it too. Well, thank you, Oliver. I like that. So uh, we rented this Jeep and we drove around. I mean, we had a, a great trip. Now suppose, suppose 
that I got my daughter this Jeep as her first vehicle. Now, let me rest assured, Abby, if you can hear me, it ain't happening, okay? <laughs> but let's just, say, let's just say that somehow she got this Jeep as her first car. How do you think that that gift would impact her? Well, she'd take care of it. You guys remember your first car. She would wash it. She would want to keep things updated. I mean, she would just love that thing, and she would take such good care of it. Well, Paul says that's like our bodies here in the world today. God's given you a gift. Take care of it. It's okay to be conscious of our health. It's okay to exercise. It's, it's, it's not okay to worship these things as though your body won't fail you. Know that it's going to fail, but it's still a gift. And he's asked us to take care of this gift. He's asked us to steward what he's given us and to take it seriously because we know that it's a gift. But no matter how much my daughter takes care of this Jeep, no matter how much attention she puts into it, it's a depreciating asset. Eventually, it will look like this, right? <laughs> no matter what, right? You think back to your first car, and you're like, yeah, yeah, okay. She could put all the attention and care she wants into it, but it's fading. It's not something that's going to get better on its own, and no matter how much care we put into it, it will begin to fail us, and that is what Paul's saying about our earthly bodies as well. Take care of your earthly body, but understand that here on earth, it's perishable. It's going to fade. It's going to look different. You're not going to be able to lose the weight the way you wanted to lose the weight. You're not going to be able to move and run and be active the way that you used to move and run and be active. And that can lead us to some pretty dis disparaging moments when that comes, becomes a reality. And our bodies here on this earth begin to show that they are, in fact, perishable. They are headed to look like something like this one day. I read a book this week called Heaven by a guy named Randy Alcorn, and in the book he said, man, if we, if we could have seen Adam and Eve in the garden before sin entered the world, they would take our breath away. And if they could turn around and see us, they would pity us. <laughs> and that's true. Sin has that impact on us. But what Paul is also trying to tell them, in addition to the fact that they should take care of their bodies and that their bodies are fading on them, is that, man, there's coming a day when the perishable will be imperishable. And you're going to be fueled by a different kind of fuel, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, that the Holy Spirit that will fuel us will now be fueling a body that can't be corrupted by sin. And when you match a body that can't be corrupted by sin and the power of the Holy Spirit, you get the type of fuel that would cause the body to never begin to fade. And so instead of this, you'll get this, right? When we get to heaven, it's like, no, like this is not just a Jeep. This is the Jeep, right? It's got all the bells and whistles, and the paint will never fade. The engine will never go bad. You don't need an oil change. You never need to fill it up with gas because it'll never fade. It'll never rust. It will never deteriorate. And what Paul is saying is that as Christians, as Christians, when we think about what God has done in Christ, when we can get our eyes fixed on these two fixed realities, and these two fixed realities can give us what we need to keep going, that when my body does begin to fade, when things do stop working the way they used to work, when I can't quite keep up with my kids, don't tell them, the way that I used to be able to keep up with my kids, when those days start creeping up on us, we have this vision. We get to see ahead. We get to know what's coming. And even though this life begins to fail me, the next one never will. I like the way that a guy named Benjamin Calamy said it. He said this, This earthly body is slow and heavy in all of its motions, listless and soon tired with action. But our heavenly bodies, they shall be as fire, as active and as nimble as our thoughts are. In other words, in heaven, if I can think it, I can do it. Right? Think about that. 
So you know that old song, right? Sometimes I dream that he is me, right? Like Mike, if I could be like Mike, well, guess what, Mike? I'm going to be just like you when I get to heaven, all right? I'm going to dunk that basketball like, like nothing else. So I'm going to throw that football like Peyton Manning or the better quarterback, Tom Brady. Save it. <laughs> Look at that. That was awesome. <laughs> I'm going to eat whatever I want. I'm not going to eat what I don't want to eat. And then I'm going to see my mom. Her body won't be beaten up like it was on this earth because of her choice. Right? And then, then you're going to get to hug your kid again because cancer, it's not welcome there. And I'll stop getting phone calls from friends whose parents and family members have these diseases and illnesses that are just eating away at them. And you'll go run in with your mom again because she'll be young and healthy. You'll play catch with your dad because dementia will have no impact. There'll be no pain, no hurt, no suffering, no depreciating assets. But not yet. Not yet. You see, Jesus is waiting because he wants a chance for every soul to be saved, but he's coming because he wants everything to be restored. And that includes us. So Paul describes what the waiting should be like in our last verse in chapter 15. He says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so while we wait, we take care of this gift he's given to us. And we don't despair when it begins to fade because we know we've been given a little bit of a vision of what's to come. And we know that whatever is depreciated in this life will be imperishable in the next. Up near Alaska in Siberia, right in the middle of the Bering Strait, you can find these two islands, the Diomede Islands. It's the big island and the little island. The big island's Russia's. The little island belongs to the United States. What's fascinating about these two islands is that they're only two and a half miles apart. Only two and a half miles apart. So you can stand on one and literally see the other one. And because of their location... They're in two different time zones. And because of those two different time zones, you can look at different times, literally. You can be standing on Friday on the little island and be looking at Saturday on the big island. It's pretty fascinating. It's a real thing. This is what I think of when I think of waiting for the return of Jesus. I stand on this little island, and the waters can be intense. But then I'm given these two fixed realities to focus on. And all of a sudden, I can see a glimpse. Not everything that's going to happen on the big island, but I get a glimpse of the big island. And I get to look from Friday into Saturday. And I get to look from Saturday into Sunday. And I know what's coming. And I know enough of what's coming to help me weather the storm of where I'm currently at. I know what the Lord has in store for me, just enough to know how I can get through the difficulty that I'm walking through today. So at the risk of sounding a little repetitive. I want to do something today. I want you to picture, the Bible says that in addition to the new bodies, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So picture a place, right, where the ice cream never melts and every bite of food tastes better than the bite before, right? Picture a place where you can run and never get tired. Picture a place where the joy you experience just somehow keeps to increase over and over and over again. Some of you, I know this because I've had phone calls this very week 
you're walking through difficulty. You are feeling like you're adrift and you're not quite sure where to go. And I just want to read some scripture over you. I've done this before, but I can't think of a better passage of scripture to read over us, to help us get our bearings straight, to help us fix our eyes on these two fixed realities. So whatever you're going through today, you might want to close your eyes. You don't have to. Do whatever you want. But allow the words of this scripture to wash over you as we bring our time today in God's word to a close. Revelation 21. John, the apostle, gets a glimpse of heaven, and he describes it this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, look, God's dwelling place. God is living with his people again, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. And he will wipe every single tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, Jesus, then declared, I am making everything new. Father, we thank you for that promise. And when the waters around us get tough and difficult, we're not quite sure what to do. Would you remind us that there's coming a day where you're going to resurrect us? And whatever happens here on this earth, whatever difficulty we walk through, will be fully redeemed and restored upon your return. Father, would you help us on those dark days? Remember to fix our eyes on these two fixed realities that Jesus died for us and Jesus resurrected on our behalf so that we might be reunited with you on this earth and in the one to come. So our prayer this morning is simple. Come, Lord Jesus, and all God's people said.